The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. Welcome, everybody, again to another podcast episode of Taking It to Heart with the Structural Heart Valve Center at Columbia University. We have our esteemed colleagues today. First, uh, Dr. Sashil Kadali, our interventional cardiologist. We have uh, Dr. Vinny Bapet, a cardiac surgeon, and Rebecca Hahn, our imaging expert. We are in the midst of COVID. We've experienced now six weeks of hardship and pain and uh, all, some drastic changes to our practices. We've converted hospitals to ICUs. We still have a number of patients in the hospital. We have not restarted elective cases, and that's the status of what we're doing right now with our structural heart practice. It's been a, a pretty uh, tragic time for a lot of people. Um, we've been very lucky overall, but we're still taking care of a lot of these patients. But we have a number of patients that we still have to treat with structural heart disease. We um, have changed everything that we have done in our clinical practice. In addition, as an academic institution, we've really had to change how we take care of patients and take care of our residents and deal with education, whether it's from our surgical training, but specifically to our structural heart training. We typically have three valve fellows per year as trained interventional cardiologists who on a given day can do, you know, four to five TAVRs a day or two to three microclips or watchmans. So they've been now redeployed. Uh, they finally come back after six weeks of ICU work, taking care of COVID patients. But it's been a big change for them, and it's going to be a big change for the next few months. Um, and so there's a, there's a period of 25% or 33% of their fellowship now that has been COVID, that has been changed and will be affected. Um, and we wanted to talk about that today, and we wanted to, to see what the impact is discuss the impact, and see what we can do to make this better. You know, the reality is that we have a forecast that, that predicts that COVID may be with us for the next year, two years. Maybe it's going to be here forever. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll never get rid of it. And that's going to change what we do. Um, so, Sheila, maybe you can talk just briefly to, to start us off how we've changed our interaction with residents in terms of doing cases and seeing patients. Um, and then we'll go to Becky and Vinny and talk about some other specifics. Sure. I'm and gonna... I just want everyone to know that we're not wearing masks, but one of the great things about wearing a mask is that we don't have to smell everyone's bad breath. And so it's, it's just like surgery now. And so we just, we can wear it every day and I'm all for it. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. Yes, and then we can talk about all the other consequences of COVID as well that are non-clinical, uh, such as long hair and haircuts and everything else. But uh, I mean, I think the focus today has really been on uh, talk about training, and you raise a lot of important points. Um, I mean, I think 
you know, our, we had we have three excellent structural fellows this year, um, and you know they they did a fair number of cases to, uh, by the time the pandemic hit. But starting in early March, we had to sort of conserve resources. Um, the hospital said we had to limit uh, use of uh, masks and gowns and, and gloves and everything else. Uh, and so, you know, at that time, we had to limit the number of people that scrubbed for a case. So rather than having couldn't have trainees scrub, and so. Starting in early March, they, they were sort of, you know, shut out to a large extent from structural cases. And then starting mid-March, we were all shut out because the, we were told to stop sort of all sort of structural cases. Uh, we, did a, we did a one or two sort of really sort of urgent uh, inpatient, uh, you know, bioprosthetic valve failure type of cases. But other than that, you know, in the course of four weeks, I think we did two, two cases uh, going from averaging, you know, 12 cases a week to two in the course of total of two cases over four weeks. So I think that, you know, obviously impacts their training, um, that impacts their sort of procedural experience. And it's not that it's gonna come back right away because, you know, as we're not able to just restart, the hospital still has a lot of COVID, patients don't wanna come in, and it's gonna be a slow restart. Um, so, you know, hopefully over the next uh, several weeks, uh, we might get up to doing, you know, back to 50% of our cases. But essentially, by the time their fellowship is done in June, they really haven't restarted. So they've lost a, a, almost a third of their fellowship. And that obviously impacts training. And they've also lost a third of their fellowship during the period when we allow sort of the greatest autonomy, right? They, you know, for TAVERS, they do the, both the front end, the back end. They make a lot of decision making. They do every aspect of the case. And so the sort of the, the more decision making aspect uh, is, is what they've lost. And that's especially true for the interventional cardiology fellows. So I think that does impact it. And I think it's, you know, you, you can't sort of minimize that impact. Um, and also they're gonna be starting jobs at a period of time when they haven't done really a lot of cases for the period of four months. And so they're gonna go into their independent practice uh, over after a period of like limited activity. So all of yeah. these challenges um, that I think can't avoid, but I think the, the other argument I would say is they've learned a lot. I mean, I, as we all have, right? You, all of us have done, Sort of other work, ICU work. We've interacted with colleagues that we normally wouldn't during this COVID pandemic. You know, the ICU doctors, the neurologists. You know, we've had pediatricians in the ICU that we work with. You know, that this sort of camaraderie and working with the nurses and all the other staff, I think, has added a lot. I think there's real value gained that is is just as important as what was lost in some of the structural training. And I think our trainees, uh, fortunately, had done a lot of cases before. They've each already done a hundred. So I, I, I think the, 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 the loss on the structural side is less, but I think it, it's, it's, not, it's not trivial. Well, there's, there's no question there's an emotional and psychological aspect to mental competency or emotional competency. And I think that is very important. And that's, that's at the end when you're really leading a service, leading a, a case, <laughs> and not just having someone tell you what to do where you lose it. I mean, I, I agree with you a little bit. You gain some of that by taking care of COVID patients. But, you know, COVID vet management and all of this stuff is not stuff that we're going to do every day. And I've already forgotten all of it, right? And so I'm not entirely sure that it's going to help, um, you know, as much as we think for people to grow. I mean, you know, our fellows are all trained attendings to some extent. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think... You know we're lucky because we're a high volume program, and I think that's why they're going to be they're going to be fine. But I think for a center that let's say has one structural fellow, and they do 200 cases, I think it's 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 kind of devastating. Um, 
Um, I mean, maybe Becky, do you want to comment on the the imaging side of this? Um, you know, yeah. we, we have we have busy imagers and and how has this affected them? Yeah, no, I mean, the the regular Echolab early, early on, it was uh, pretty clear that uh, the close contact that needs to be made to, do, to actually perform a transthoracic echo meant that uh, all, all the societies, you know, the European, the American societies all immediately put out. Uh, statements um, about safety for our sonographers and the physicians doing doing the scanning and calling for um, abbreviated protocols and um, you know making sure that the echocardiograms were being performed for the appropriate reasons and for indications that would actually be meaningful so that would change management and that meant for the echo lab that there was a significant reduction in the number immediately went down um, uh, and that there was a screening process that th that then went on uh, to further reduce the the number of uh, studies that were being performed and uh, Despite all this, and probably possibly not related to exposure directly to patients, but four of the sonographers actually got, got COVID. So, I mean, it's not a, a risk-free um, procedure given how close you are to the patient. I mean, you're touching the patient the whole time. So, That's we, a great point. I mean, we have to keep the balance of exposure risk to residents, too. What's that moral obligation, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, so we, you know, we 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 started a really huge initiative of um, a point of care uh, echo. I mean, we'd always had something called focused uh, cardiac ultrasound, so focus, um, but also POCUS, which is point of care ultrasound. Um, and now, what the beauty of of what's happened is it's we've got this really nice multidisciplinary group together now from anesthesia, the emergency room, the pulmonologists, um, and we're all getting together uh, to generate teaching webinars uh, so that anyone that uh, now, um, you know, has their hands on these handheld ultrasound devices of which we were given a gift of 20 um, by a very generous donor, uh, would be able to do scans of the lung, the heart, and the vasculature. So, I mean, it, it's it that's been a tremendous learning um, and and uh, advantage really of of, of this kind of um, you know just the COVID forcing us really to get together finally. So, uh, those are all great points. So, Vinny, you're the master of technology. Vinny is the only person who every two years will get a new laptop just because he can, despite how much it costs every two years. But so talking about technology, let's say, um, you know, what what do you think about the, the simulators that we have out there? Let's say this goes on for a year and we have three new fellows. We're gonna have to figure out some way to help them learn some of this material. It's a little bit more obvious and a little more straightforward in surgery where we have Kind of simulators that we actually operate on, <clears throat> not perfect. It's a lot harder when we try to do this for transcatheter work, and particularly, let's say, mitral and tricuspid stuff that that you do that maybe the fellows aren't even really able to do or or, or at that level to do. How do you try to teach them mitral, tricuspid, anatomy, procedures, techniques, and you know the the field in and of itself? Are, do, the, are, do you have any tips or? or ideas about simulators or technology? So there's a good point. I, I didn't, I think my laptop just uh, uh, did its two years. So thanks for reminding <laughs> me. Uh, I, I'm waiting for USB D to come now, not C. 
Uh, I think this is a great point. Means if you look at technology as such and the use of technology, our fellows learn most of it, which is say structural heart fellows, for example, which is very specific, mainly 90% to do with aortic stenosis, diagnosis, management, imaging, etc. cetera. Uh, but there is a lot of scope because uh, as you and me know now that even just in five years now, the trend is changing rapidly. Uh, we are seeing multivalvular disease. People need to understand not just anatomy, but how to triage these patients, which way to send these patients. So there's a lot of scope in this interim time to uh, discuss and educate, say, case-based things with them and educate them. As far as simulators go, they, they can be used. Uh, I think the tower simulators are more refined, and I'm sure they can be used more effectively, so to speak. Uh, there are certain companies, as you know, that they can allow you to vary the scenario as well to see how people react during using this simulator. So that can be of use. But I'm not that actually worried as everybody else is about training because Colombia is a very high volume training center. Uh, if you compare Colombia with any other center or even training in Colombia five years or maybe eight years ago, I think current fellows have already done a lot of work in a very mature way. Um, you know, when I trained in general surgery, I used to be really desperate to do more appendicectomies. And my boss reminded me that time that he said that it's a Murphy's law that all of you are going to do only 300 appendicectomies. So better do only 30 here and do 270 in private practice. If you do 100 here, you're only going to do 200 outside. So I think they will catch up and they will learn on the go. Wherever they start their job is going to be a slow process there as well because everybody's going through COVID crisis. So I think they will gel in pretty well, uh, more than what you think at present. I mean, I think the point that you you raised is, is important. I think on the TAVR side, it's probably not, not as much of an issue. Um, and we, you know, we, people have enough experience, but it's about seeing all the things that go wrong. That's what comes with the experience. But it's some of the other stuff, it's the complex PCIs and AS, it's, it's mitre clip. And also on, on your surgical fellow side, it just the repetition probably has, has value, right? Just in operating, right? And it's just that repetitive skill set that you, you miss a little bit. Absolutely. I, agree. I mean, it's been yeah, I think uh, you think complex PCI, they can always refer them for CABG, which is uh, longer lasting. <laughs> I mean, I so, wonder uh, what's, what's going to happen <laughs> to, you know, there's some kind of rough guidelines as to how many, you know, transcatheter devices you should do in your training. And now that your training's been cut short by like 30%, I mean, what do you think will happen to the structural fellows in smaller programs? I mean, it's the same for my structural imager as well. He's done so many TEEs and procedures already that he really only needed six months and everything else is gravy. But what about those smaller programs? They're never going to meet numbers. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, you know, just everyone's thoughts, maybe this, this shifts the dynamics and evens the playing field or evens the market dynamics of training. Maybe we don't need to train so many people for a little while, and maybe that balances out all of the excess structuralists that we've been training, right? I mean, Sushil, I mean, we have three fellows, but, you know, not all fellows over the history of Columbia or certainly nationwide goes out and is practicing structural heart. I mean, we have a lot of extra structural heart fellows. We can save that for another podcast. 
Um, but just in this COVID era, I mean, is this a is this a, a balancing factor here? Uh, you know, again, I think you're you're right. I think there are a lot of structural fellows. It depends on what's going to be required for people to do structural cases going forward. It's really sort of a separate podcast, right? I mean, the the fellowship is not required. This is extra training. You know, what is the value when when it's not required? It really comes down to the value of the training and finding an appropriate job. All you know, all three of our fellows have found jobs where they're going to be doing structural cases. They wouldn't have gotten those jobs where their primary focus is structural cases. They wouldn't have gotten those jobs without training. So it's this balance, and, and you're right, in terms of finding the right number of trainees. And it's a separate issue, a separate podcast, I, uh, as you said, but I'm not, you know, I don't think this is going to change that. I think, I hope in, in the fall we get back to sort of, or late summer, we get back to sort of the way our fellowship normally is. And we, you know, and the training resumes the way it normally it has to date. So, last last question: Do you think uh, trainees will um, will take geographic location or COVID burden into consideration if this goes on long? You know, whether it's in the job market or in the training market. I, I don't think so. But one concern I have is, you know, and and fortunately, it hasn't been an issue with our trainees. But you know, the job market. It may not be uh, secure, right? People that had jobs, and then a lot of these a lot of these practices lost revenue, um, and so whether they put a hiring freeze, some programs have put hiring freezes, some systems have put hiring freezes, so people that had jobs may not have that job, or the salary that they were promised may be cut now, and you know I think that's one of the concerns for a lot of these trainees coming out now uh, is the job market is different than when they accepted their jobs in February, and how. And what changes right. that's going to impact, right? So we, we always say, you know, you know, you train, then there's this sort of, you know, curve, right? You know, there's this learning curve, right? There's, it's steep, then it flattens out at the end, towards the end of training. And then when you're first six months of attending, it's steep again because you're doing everything on your own. That first six months of attending for a lot of these people that are starting, depending on the region they start, is going to be very different. It's going to be very different volumes because – the cases are different. People are not coming in. And so that's deep part of the learning curve. And now becomes even more flat and longer. And how that impacts that second level of training, um, I, I don't know. And I think that's different. It's, it's just the jobs are going to be different when they start. The volumes are different. Everything's different. All right. This has been a great discussion. I want to thank everybody for, uh, for everyone's comments and commentary. Vinny will be expectedly waiting a COVID app that we can use to sterilize ourselves or train residents or do everything else but until then yeah, we'll, uh, uh, we, we are trying to develop it uh, all the disinfectants are uh, in short supply at present so as soon did as you put hydrochloroquine in there as well please injectable so, <laughs> injectable <laughs> um all right well i'm going to conclude this session uh we'll see you back soon thanks